Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Scott Small is a physician specializing in aging and dementia. He's a professor of neurology and psychiatry at Columbia University, where he's the director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. He has run a National Institutes of Health-funded laboratory for over 20 years and has published more than 140 studies on memory function and malfunction, research that has been covered by the New York Times, The New Yorker, and Time. And today, we're going to discuss his fascinating book titled Forgetting. The Benefits of Not Remembering. Yes, you heard that right. Scott, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So I found your book fascinating. And if we asked our audience of listeners if they wanted a better memory, myself included, I think everyone would raise their hand, yes. But you say in your book called Forgetting, The Benefits of Not Remembering, that in fact, there are benefits of forgetting. So let's start there. What let you down this path? It's a bit counterintuitive given what you do. So let's go there. Yeah, it's a great first question because it's, it's counterintuitive to you, to me, and it's particularly counterintuitive to someone like me who's professionally focused on trying to always improve memory. That's basically what I was trained through in basic science and my training in neurology. And so the first thing I'll say is that this is not meant to be just a feel-good book, you know, celebrate your foibles. <laughs> This is really anchored uh, on new science, hardcore science that just came out in the last 10 years or so on the benefits of normal forgetting and why we need forgetting to sculpt our memories to live smarter, better and happier lives. So can you make the distinction between, quote unquote, normal forgetting versus pathological forgetting? Yeah, that's a great question and allows me to make the clear point that what I'm not celebrating here in any way, shape or form is pathological forgetting. Pathological forgetting is what my patients have. Pathological forgetting, the easiest way, there are all kinds of definitions to define it, is any worsening from your own baseline. If you notice that your memory is worsening as you age, that's pathological. And it comes in two flavors. It could reflect a disease, most commonly Alzheimer's, the early stages of Alzheimer's, or it can also reflect the normal wear and tear of the aging process. So aging itself and diseases, age-related disorders will cause pathological forgetting. What the book is focused on and the new science of forgetting focuses on is the forgetting that we're all born with, that occurs naturally, and yet we all complain about it. So I'm just fascinated by this idea you talk about in the book. So, so many of us want a steel trap memory or a photographic memory. And before we, we get into photographic, at the highest level, when is having a, a quote unquote good memory good? And when is having a, a good memory bad? So, right. And again, I'll say if, if I'm really emphasizing here the newness of the benefits of forgetting, let me make sure that I'm not dissing on memory. <laughs> memory is important. Memory is good. The point of the book is that you need memory and forgetting to work in balance, to sculpt our cognitive abilities, our creative abilities, our emotional well-being. And so if you're asking when is uh, memory bad, I, I would say in kind, it's only bad if it comes at the 
price of compromising your normal forgetting. But I know, and I've been trained with many uh, luminaries who have exceptional memory, and they have succeeded in their lives. It's only when they're, that balance is off kilter. And so it, it, memory can, can serve us well, and can also be traumatic. And something you, you talk about in the book extensively is, is trauma. So there's a benefit to remembering trauma and trauma can also be something that we desperately fight to overcome for our entirety of our, our lives. So can you talk a little bit about trauma and our ability to maybe, maybe just for, forget it or move on or just how, how should we think about trauma and our memory? Yeah, no, that's a, it's a great question. And it's really the, in, in some ways, the book deals with when this balance is all kilter memory and forgetting for emotional memories and for cognitive abilities. And I think people intuitively understand that you need to forget to forgive, that you need to let go. Letting go is one of the many colloquialisms we use, which basically taps into forgetting. And the extreme clinical version of that is post-traumatic stress disorder, right? And the stress the uh, emotional stress can cause our brain to be disordered. And that disorder is fundamentally because our emotional memory is off kilter. We seem to not be able to engage our forgetting to sculpt down the emotional memories. And, and that is absolutely true. Now, again, to illustrate how you need the balance, one would never say we just celebrated uh, the anniversary, or not celebrated, we commemorated, there, there's the memory word, the anniversary of 9-11. I was in New York when that happened, and I have a lot of memories, and many of those memories should not be forgotten, as were the banners, right, throughout the country, particularly in New York. But what turns out to be the case is that you need to forget some of the emotional valence of those memories. Otherwise, you might not be able to uh, function normally. You might not be able to fly. You might not be able to live in a city with tall buildings. So it's important to have them both working together. Never forget the details, the victims, the perpetrators. Certainly that's cognitive or factual memory, but it is beneficial to sculpt down the emotional memories to allow us to live going forward. Well, Let's talk about that for a minute, because you, know, you mentioned 9-11, very recent. I was also in New York at the time. I was a few blocks away when it happened. I remember it vividly, lost some friends in 9-11. And 20 years later, I feel like this event happened, got a, I'm very traumatic, gotten over it. And then I find myself on the day, like walking by one of the firehouses in Brooklyn Heights that, that lost a lot of firemen during that day and, and they were lining up and I, I was aware of my, I was like found myself like choking up and like and part of me said wow like I can't believe 20 years later I, I, I'm I'm still feeling this and then I'm also thinking and I want your take maybe if I'm not feeling this 20 years later that's even more <laughs> problematic this idea of like burying trauma you know there's some trauma it's this idea of you need to overcome it you need to come to terms with it but burying it probably isn't healthy. Right. Burying is, and in the book, I talk a lot about the metaphors because all words are metaphors and there are a lot of metaphors for memory. Burying would be the wrong, I think, word. I would say sculpting down, deleting. 
And let me be very specific here because I too, we probably were very close to each other. If you were in Uptown New York, you remember how traumatizing it was. I certainly do. And I had the same recollection, emotional and of course, factual on 9-11 a few days ago. And that's appropriate. And that's completely appropriate. Uh, and I agree with you. It would be some, it would be a little bit bizarre and I would say cold hearted for any of us who were in New York or anyone around the country or the world to have no emotional recollection of that, of that horrific day. But I would imagine I know this because I talk with doctors at Columbia who treat PTSD post 9-11. Some people really were not able, we're not talking about the recollection uh, during the day and the commemoration. And think about it, culturally, we have many memorial days. Don't forget the Alamo, don't forget a lot of things. And we shouldn't, clearly factually and also emotionally for those who experience the emotional memory. But if it burns too hot, those emotional memories, and it impairs our ability to function, which doesn't sound like it happened to you. It didn't happen to me, even though I was there and ready to, to receive all the ambulances that never arrived. And I too lost actually family members. It hasn't prevented me, it, 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 my, my normal forgetting abilities prevented me from having PTSD. And that's the distinction. Uh, the one thing I'll quickly say on words, the forgetting also comes into politics, amnesty right? Amnesty that happens in South Africa or in, in Europe post-World War II or in our wars. Amnesty comes from forgetting to be able to engage even a perpetrating country that have committed crimes. If you believe in amnesty, you are actually agreeing that forgetting is beneficial, even for our communal memories. So I think what we're hitting on here are our emotions and in the book, you talk about this paper you wrote about how our emotions can bias. And I think this is very appropriate given the time we live in, how our emotions can bias what we see and how we can remember essentially the stories we, we tell ourselves as part of our narrative. So what were some of the key takeaways? Well, I'm so delighted in many ways that you're focusing on that paper, because that's actually my first paper I ever wrote in, I think, well, I know in 1986, I think. So I've just told you how it was old a I good am. paper. And, and that's fantastic. And it also links into the chapter on decision making in my discussions with the Nobel Prize winner, uh, Danny Kahneman. But basically, again, that was sort of things we intuitively know. But in psychology, I was a psych student at the time. It's not enough to say you intuitively know it, you have to show it objectively. So basically, in that paper, very simplistic. If I were to take someone who was more sad, and you can induce sadness in, in the laboratory setting, that person will be more inclined to see and register sad words, sad faces. And the flip side is true. If someone is happy, they're more likely to have a mind stickier for happy items out in the environment. And you're absolutely right. It's very relevant to our current politics and sociology. And so... How is that? This is a big question, and I'm just going to go for it. So as we think about what we see, what we hear, I can't help but think of the, the echo chamber of social media and how we are, I'm like, basically Facebook has been on the cover of the Wall Street Journal every day this week. It's been fascinating. Not good for Facebook, but essentially an algorithm with, which is geared towards continuing to feed us information that we want to see and that we develop our own biases. And how does that 
I mean, this is a big question, but if we're continually fed information and surrounded by people who confirm our worldview, how, in terms of our memory, can we ever be open to another worldview that may yeah. not be ours? In, in an yeah. effort, and I'm coming at this from a place of like, of healing and unity. <laughs> I, I, and me too. And I think we're, we, both of us have our hearts where they should be. We both come, I'm a healer. I'm a, certainly a healer professionally and neurologically, but I think I agree with you. I'm concerned sociologically and political, politically on the polarization of our society. And you're absolutely right that we need memory and forgetting to sculpt our information. So if I form a bias, I, I grew up in a foreign country, I've never met a person of color, and I form a bias because my grandparents were biased, I need my memory and forgetting to update that as I mature and become more diverse in my worldview. That's a simple example. I think though, Jason, you're asking a really interesting question on the issue. I'll use one fancy word, not terribly fancy, and that's epistemology. How do we know what we know? And the real worry of Facebook, of Twitter, the, the Twitterdom is that we live in our echo chambers and how do you break through that? And I, I would just ask anyone if they, and it's only because it's an example that was proposed to me, if you, uh, God forbid, have a horrible disorder, how will you choose a doctor? You're not going to rely on a vitriolic perspective that's being tweeted. You might, but you would fundamentally rely on more or less objective criteria. You would get a lot of perspectives and you would ride, arrive at a decision. The one thing I will say that's obviously sort of obliquely related to the book, something that I think on this topic that's more related, if I can keep on going, is the, is the way the polarization of society seems to me anchored in fear memories. And in the book, I have a chapter because I had to, that talks about the difference between chimps and bonobos. And chimps are known for being rageful and bloody-minded and angry and violent. Now, it's not a criticism against chimps because that's the world they live in. Bonobos are the opposite. They're altruistic, they're open-minded, they're compassionate. Quite literally, these are the adjectives used by primatologists. And of course, it's always dangerous to simplify. But recent studies that are part of the new science of forgetting has asked, well, what's the difference in the brain that accounts for that? And it seems really to be about these, this part of our brain that stores our fear memories. So for example, we know that sociopaths, which is really the extreme of the sort of murderous rage, they're areas of the brain that store these fear memories are on overdrive. They have no sculpting down. So Every slight or insult that they suffered throughout their developmental years are just prominent in their minds. When we all suffered some of these, more or less, but somehow we've all engaged our forgetting to keep those rageful, perseverative fear memories in check. So I'm going to come back to what we can do. One thing you, you talk about, which we all love here at Mind Buddy Green, we can't get enough of, sleep. So what role does sleep play in our memory? Yeah, uh, the issue of sleep is absolutely fascinating. It's, first of all, one of the great mysteries. Uh, here is something that we spend almost a third of our lives, for those who are lucky to, but even those who claim they don't, they, they actually do six, usually six hours over a course of a 24-hour period, in a position where we're vulnerable to the world. Right? You would think that evolution would do away with sleep, yet we all sleep <laughs> down to flies. 
across the animal kingdom. So why is it so central? And that's always been a mystery. And one idea was proposed by Francis Crick, who was part of the dynamic duo Crick and Watson, who won the Nobel Prize in the 1960s for figuring out the genetic code, right? Arguably one of the most important discoveries in biology. And he, but I never had the, the benefit of meeting him, but he apparently was a really outstandingly smart person. He said, well, that was pretty easy. Let's move on to more difficult topics, consciousness and sleep. Of course, being a little facetious, but it is interesting. That's what he focused most of his career on post Nobel Prize winning. And on sleep, he had a really provocative paper in 1983 that he basically argued that we sleep in order to forget. And he introduced this interesting idea, smart forgetting. And it was a provocative idea. If it wasn't published by him, it probably would have gotten no play. But because it was him, it did. And he spawned a group of really talented scientists who only in the last 10 years have able to test this idea formally. And it turns out sleep probably has a lot of purposes, but one of the main purposes of sleep is to trim down our memories. And here are the metaphors, thinking of memories as sort of a lawn of a, a grass field of memories because memories are stored throughout the cortex. And you need sleep to really mow down or at least shape the lawn so you can actually better memor remember certain items. So it's sort of like a topiary, but fundamentally most of what your mind now is remembering throughout the course of your day, most of it is extraneous and unnecessary and detrimental is cropped down while you sleep by the mechanisms, the new mechanisms of forgetting. So that's really, really turned out to be interesting. And it links into creativity, which is the punchline of that paper, of that chapter rather. So what's an example of some of the garbage, if you will, that our trash, our trash recycler or whatever we want to call yeah. it, our, our garbage collector and that visits us in our dreams needs to pick up and throw out? Right. So obviously there's a psychological, maybe Freudian take on that. I'm going to stay away from that because it's beyond my understanding. But on the neuroscience, what we know is that our brains are very sticky. Another colloquial term for memory. Our, as you're sitting here, you're hearing a lot of things. You're feeling a lot of things that you might not consciously register, but your brain does. And your brain is very good at remembering a thousand details, a million details. And most of them are not really critical for your, for your life. Now, it's in that chapter I talk about if people really object to, well, is forgetting really good? The best way to experientially prove that is ask someone to stay awake for three days. Few people have because it's actually dangerous, but some people have do ha have been forced to. And the testimonials are clear. You don't have impaired memory. You have too much, too little memory. You have impaired forgetting. And so those people who are sleep deprived, their brains are static with information. They can't think clearly. They even develop perceptual illusions and sometimes delusions and hallucinations. That is firmly established in the literature. That to me is a great proof experientially of why we need forgetting to be cognitively clearer in our mind. And building off of sleep, what, what role do hormones play? 
Right. So hormones play a lot of roles in both the benefits of memory and the benefits of forgetting for uh, keeping this balance well equilibrated. And it's interesting, again, I'm I'm a neurologist, I'm a basic scientist. Uh, I was interested in the new science of forgetting, but I needed examples that come from the way I think, right? The way I think is, show me a chemical that is that induces forgetting and appears to be beneficial. That would be helpful for me. And in the book, I talk about um, oxytocin. Uh, and oxytocin is a hormone that was first described. So 100 years ago, the biomedical field was obsessed with hormones. That's when adrenaline was described and then testosterone and cortisone. And oxytocin was sort of minimized Partly, and this I think reflects biases in all fields, bias, mainly because it was thought to be confined to the maternity wards. Because what oxytocin was first shown to do was to be important for delivery. It relaxes muscles, the uterine muscles for delivery. And then it was shown to be important for, for feeding babies and producing milk. And so whatever, maybe it might have been linked to biases in the field. It's a woman's hormone. It's not, it's not uh, cortisol, which we all need for fight or flight. What then emerged uh, in the 1980s and 90s is that oxytocin is important for all of our interactions, not just the interaction between a mother and her child, but any social interaction. And that interaction could be both social and physical, right? And it turns out when that happens, we secrete oxytocin and we create these sort of social bonding. And then the question is, well, what happens in the brain? How is that mediated? Again, the qualifier, let's not oversimplify, but the new science of forgetting has taught us that one of the main things that oxytocin does is it turns down the areas in our brain that store fear memories. And if you think about it, it's very hard to establish a new social bonding if you're really fearful and rageful and hypersensitive. You have to relax. You have to open up your heart. That requires keeping your fear memories at bay. So the question I'm asking myself is, what do I do? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm healthy. What do I do to make sure that I'm striking that appropriate balance, making sure that my brain is limber. How, how can I be proactive to, to strike that balance with memory and well, remembering and forgetting? Right. So it's a great question. And in fact, it, it, I describe myself a few times, I think, in the book as a brain mechanic, because that's what I am, posed with people who have a broken brain, in my case, Alzheimer's and aging. How do I fix it? Complicated, but that's the way I think. So if now I'm saying that normal forgetting needs to work well as an engineer or a mechanic, I'd like to know, well, how do I accelerate that? I'll start with something that was most interesting to me and I think most relevant. In the PTSD chapter, I had a, a PTSD expert. And in the, every chapter, I sort of have a guide who are experts in, in a particular field. And we went through some issues that might explain why two people who are exp exposed to the same trauma, one goes on to develop PTSD, the other doesn't. Now it's clear that the person who doesn't was able to engage their emotional forgetting mechanisms. But what is the, what are the modulators? What are the risk factors for that? And there are many, but one of the most important conclusions, 
and it links back to what we were saying about oxytocin, one of the most important conclusions is not pharmaceuticals or molecules the way I think, but social interventions. In other words, a soldier comes back from a horrible experience. They are then forced to live alone, socially isolated. That's a risk factor for developing PTSD. And in contrast, that same person or a person in the same uh, unit comes back and is lived in a very coddling social environment full of laughter and love. That is a significant preventive of developing PTSD. And again, not to oversimplify, but one of the reasons for that is that when you're engaged in, 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 in social interactions, love and laughter, you're releasing oxytocin. So it can be me mechanically reduced, although again, I've said this too many times, I'm, I'm a little careful of oversimplifying. So in terms of lifestyle, we've touched on sleep. We need uh, real, real connections with, with real people that are meaningful, which has been a challenge during COVID. In terms Absolutely. of lifestyle, is there anything else? Is it omega-3s? Is it exercise? Is it nature? Is it anything else in terms of lifestyle that people can proactively do? So first of all, let me completely emphasize what you just said. If the current trauma for some people call, call, called the pandemic of the COVID pandemic is traumatic to some people. I, as a clinician now with this new insight, am generally concerned that not only is a grandparent now stressed because they have to be socially isolated, but it's gonna increase the risk of PTSD potentially. This is something that I know PTSD experts are gonna be tracking into the future. Now, in terms of other things, so live a life glittered with love and happiness that I end a chapter like that and I'm smiling and probably blushing now because I never thought I, a sort of hardcore basic reductionist, would ever <laughs> conclude a chapter like that, but that's what came out of the science. You're asking really more about other things, certainly sleep, engage your sleep. I'll highlight two other things. One is actually a, a colleague who's a couple therapist. I was chatting with him about this. He said, I appreciate, Scott, that you're working on developing drugs to improve memory. But if you develop a drug to enhance forget, forgetting, please let me know because my practice will benefit from this. And we all know, those of us who've been socially coupled, how much forgetting is beneficial. And in fact, MDMA, otherwise known as ecstasy, was prescribed before it was banned by couple therapists. And in fact, MDMA does, among its many things, turn down our fear memories. And it's interesting to me that it's called ecstasy when you turn down your fear memories. Currently, there are no drugs I can prescribe, although, as I think you know, ecstasy MDMA is being explored now in clinical trials for PTSD, and maybe one day there will be things we can consume by mouth. But I'll end with something sort of interesting, which was unexpected to me. So my memory and forgetting is, I would say, average, good enough to get through medical school. I've always... I've always struggled with my forgetting. I say that in the first chapter, I think, of the book. I like, as you said at the beginning, we all wanted better memory. I was all frustrated that I couldn't have better uh, memory. I've noticed now that psychologically, I've relaxed a little bit when I don't can't quite think of the right word or the right thing. And in so doing, and there's some actually biology to that, when you relax on that, your memory actually gets better. So maybe the sort of meta point of the book is stop battling with your normal forgetting, and you'll see suddenly how your memory improves. Fascinating. On a personal level, after all the research you've done over the course of 
of your career, have there been other changes you've made where you said, oh, wow, I need to do that now? Well, yes. <laughs> I, 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 I giggle a little bit, Jason, because I wrote this anchored in stories, personal stories and stories of others. And I think that's you know what's called narrative nonfiction. That's helpful. But I didn't want to make it too personal. There is one very personal chapter on me and my military experience. I grew up in Israel. When I describe the personality trait of someone who's lonely, rageful, and bloody-minded, I use the chimp bonobo is an analogy, but we all know people like that, people who are really dark-hearted and seem to not uh, be able to socially connect. Now, sometimes they succeed in their particular lives. But when I now feel that I'm a little misanthropic, <laughs> I notice, I really do notice that it's driven by my fear memories, my fear of, of myself, of my capabilities. And that's when that gets turned into antisocial behavior. So I've now been more sensitized to that. And I'll just, if this is not too long-winded, Jason, I've learned to be more compassionate of those who can't. We all know the mob boss. We all know the corrupt politician who, chimp-like, has managed to succeed in their lives by being almost antisocial, but lonely. I've found that I'm more compassionate. I, 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 I feel bad for them because I know that they're missing out on a really important life, part of life that requires keeping fear memories at bay. So you mentioned fear and I can't help but think of, you hear this all the time, it's almost a cliche. You hear so many successful CEOs, entrepreneurs talk about they're, they're motivated by their fear of failure. And no matter what, they just could, could not fail, feared failure. What, what's your take on operating from that place? Well, first, full disclosure, I, I suffer from that type A personality. I'm like, so do I. I think everyone. I'm like, I'm, I think so many people, on one hand, I fear, fear failure. And on the other hand, you know, I don't know if I, I, fear success, I I'm, not sure, I'm not sure, honestly, if this is completely linked to the book, although it's probably, I, I just think that if you can funnel that fear of failure constructively, I think it works. If you can't, and if it burns too hot, so maybe it's the same argument of a balance. Everything needs a balance in our brains and our minds and our psyches. If you're so focused on careerism and success, it might actually backfire. So I would just maybe say that fears are good. And in the book, I talk about how fear, we're hardwired for fear. Fear is the first thing. A animal who has no fear and there are examples of that, will probably not survive, certainly not in the wild, and particularly not in junior high school. And so you need, you need your fear mechanisms. You need to remember your fear. But the point is, try to sculpt it down to be adaptive and not maladaptive. And, and that's an example of forgetting, adapting our fear memories. Right. So I'm going to come back to your, your work in the lab, so to speak. So Alzheimer's. Um, horrible disease. A lot of people, it affects a lot of people and many are terrified of it, and rightfully so. How, how is treatment evolving? How is prevention evolving? Where, where are we today and where do you think we're going in the next couple of years with regards to Alzheimer's? Right. It's, it's a great question. And even though this book is about normal forgetting, I by necessity talk about Alzheimer's as the foil, right? And it is what I do. And it is what I'm battling in my professional career. And it's on everyone's mind now because it's becoming more and more common as we live 
older and because of recent news. And so I'm very much engaged in this. I am the director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at Columbia. I see Alzheimer patients. So the way I communicate this in many forums to patients, family members, and even in public lectures is that I've now shifted from abject pessimism to cautious optimism that we will find a meaningful intervention. And I'm not by nature an Ali optimist, so let me try to justify that. I think most people intuitively know the mechanics cliche, you can't fix something unless what's fundamentally broken. And in truth, we didn't know what was fundamentally broken until the last few years. We had clues from genetics, but it, there was no cohesive explanation of why the, our memories are failing in early Alzheimer's disease. So the new science of Alzheimer's, different from normal forgetting, has now established at least provisionally what the basic mechanisms are that are faulty in Alzheimer's. And remember, Alzheimer's is a slowly percolating disorder. By the time I see a patient in their 60s, 70s, they've probably had it for 20 or 30 years at least. That explains a little bit of the difficulty. It's not like you wake up and suddenly have it. It's not like you can easily see it like a lesion on your skin. So there are a lot of excuses I invoke for why the field has been so slow at understanding this fundamental point. But now that we know it, I do believe that we will be able to find ways to intervene. One of the silver linings of COVID is that I think it featured how the biomedical industry has been so good at developing drugs in record time. Once a mechanism is known, once COVID was identified, it took nearly, I think, no more than a year to develop a vaccine when polio took 15 in, in the 1940s, 50s. So I do think that is my justification for a cautious optimism. And is that in the next couple of years or more of the 10 to 20? Like, how do you think about, I know it's hard to predict, but. It's, a, it's the correct question because that's how we think. I, I smile because I feel like my colleagues and I have invoked the kind of Soviet five-year program. You remember the old Soviet Union always said, in five years, we'll have this. And we tend to go for the five-year slot probably because it's more or less the way the, the metronome of how science works and because it seems far enough not to engender over-optimism. I actually think that's the wrong way to think about it. The right way to think about it is that now that we're in the right playing field, lights on, right? Until now, we were playing in the wrong playing field, lights off. The home run will be hit. I really do believe that. It's not going to happen in a month or two. It could happen optimistically in, in the next few years, given what we know. But I do believe in the next era of biomedical research, we'll find meaningful interventions. Got it. Well, Scott, thank you so much for all of the great work you're doing at Columbia. And I love the book, Forgetting the Benefits of Not Remembering. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for the great questions. <laughs>